go for launch. Five. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Four. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. This whole thing is insane. Three. Quiet, please. I am analyzing. Where's the kaboom? Two. There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. One. my fellow galactic travelers and welcome back to planet eight this is your mission commander larry speaking to you from our hidden base chief engineer bob is here by my side as always in the command center and circling planet eight in our orbital spy satellite is reconnaissance officer karen and on this episode of planet eight not only are we going to be talking about the films of one john carpenter we're going to talk about what we believe makes a John Carpenter film a John Carpenter film. Straight away, we're going to kick it up to the satellite. Walker, take it away. Thanks, Larry. Well, you know, in the past here on Planet 8, we've talked about uh, a great filmmaker, Alfred Hitchcock. Yes. And, yes. Uh, you know, we've in various episodes, we've we've talked about other filmmakers as well, but uh, when we were discussing ideas for, for episodes, for some reason, John Carpenter popped into my head. But I think it's because we have, in various episodes, discussed some of his films. And, you know, John Carpenter, to me, I the first thing I think of when I think of John Carpenter is he's such an iconoclast. And he really stands out in Hollywood as being... Um, such an individual he he does his own thing sometimes turning out you know a great film sometimes a, a not so great film but i have to respect him for doing things his way mm-hmm. you know and especially you know nowadays you see so many movies that you can tell are kind of put together by committee you know you can tell oh we had focus groups to figure out what people were going to like and not like john carpenter says f that he just does stuff his way and you know it's his vision he does like to work with people and you can see when we talk about his films he brings in a lot of the same people to work with but you know this is a guy who 
Um, as he likes to say, he's an instinctual filmmaker. He does. He goes by his gut. He does what he feels um, works in the films. And he always wanted to be a filmmaker. And I just think you know, he's made a very interesting um, collection of motion pictures for us to talk about. And so uh, John Carpenter was born uh, January 16th, 1948 in Carthage, New York. But when he was only five years old, his family moved to Kentucky. Wow. So he's discussed how this was kind of a big cultural change. His dad was a music professor and taught at the university in, in um, Kentucky where they lived. And um, he had an intense interest in films, even from childhood. He's discussed how uh, when he was a small child, he and his mother went to the movies and he saw it came from outer space. And he's discussed how that had an impact on him. Uh, you know, and in that film, I, I think it was shot in 3D. And there's like a scene where a meteor comes at um, the audience. And he said he like got so freaked out, he jumped up and he, and he ran. But <laughs> he, he, he turned back around and he came in because even though he was scared, he was really excited by it. And so he developed an interest in uh, scary movies, he said, but he also liked them tinged with science fiction. Mm. And when he was eight, his father gave him a uh, brownie eight millimeter camera. And he also had like some film cutting equipment and stuff. And so he started making his own movies as a, a small child. And um, he continued to do this. He was interested in, in filmmaking and he eventually wound up going to USC becoming a film student there, um, he was able to meet a lot of his film director heroes like Orson Welles and John Ford. Um, one of his biggest heroes was Howard Hawks, who he eventually would remake one of his films, The Thing. Uh -huh. And um, he really uh, wanted to learn like everything uh, about making films, except he said sound editing. That was the only thing he wasn't interested in. But he was interested in directing. He was interested in lighting. He was interested in all of it. And of course, as we'll talk about later, he was interested in soundtracks. And he got an interest in music from his dad, um, who was a music professor. And he was in a lot of rock bands when he was uh, a teen as uh -huh. well. So that's where his interest in music came from. But uh, yeah, he... You know, he really took an approach to to film uh, where he didn't want to, you know, overanalyze what he was doing. He just wanted to do things where he could tell a good story and really make the audience feel something. And I think looking at his films, you you can see that in what he does. And as as I kind of mentioned earlier, sometimes this is to great effect. In films like Halloween or The Thing and other times maybe, you know, it wasn't quite what he was trying to aim for. But I have to respect him for um, maintaining his vision and he definitely has a style that is instantly recognizable. Indeed. You know, you mentioned uh, USC and, and the fact that he likes to do a lot of different things. I, the whole uh, key to USC is when you're in the film department there, they teach you all aspects of film. Even if you go in there and say, I want to study to be a director or I want to study to be lighting or whatever, it doesn't matter. 
you're going to start out learning every aspect of film. And then somewhere along the line, most students kind of fall into whatever category they want to go into. John, aside from sound editing, he just <laughs> he just took that knowledge and just figured, okay, I know everything. I'm, I'm going to do, you know, multiple aspects of whatever films I do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you talk about his musical career. Um, th- again, that's kind of like sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they all sound the same. But uh, <laughs> I think he just... Like with Halloween, he nailed it. Right. Just that really simple piano. You know, it's like, it's almost like Jaws or whatever. You know, it's just Mm -hmm. very simple and instantly recognizable. In fact, the other night I was watching TV and they had a trailer for, I guess the next one is uh, Halloween Ends. But it just kind of starts where... You know, you're panning along a neighborhood. It looks like, you know, they've got lights and things like Halloween. And then it goes to the stairs of this house. And as it goes up the stairs, that theme sneaks in. And instantly you know, okay, this is going to be a Halloween movie. You know, before they show Michael Myers or before they show any scenes or a title or anything, just from that music, you know, ah, it's Halloween. And, uh... I think, you know, out of all his soundtracks that he did, that was the one where he nailed it right on the head. Oh, yeah. And and I love that, you know, with his films, they you started off in, in the late 70s, early 80s, and synthesizers. You know, there's, a, there's a lot of movies that use synthesizers. Those were huge back then. Sometimes used mm-hmm. well, sometimes not so well. Yeah. <laughs> Some used well. And, you know, you're right, Bob, that theme to Halloween, I mean, it's it's up there with the theme to Psycho. You know, it's, it's, it's iconic. It's almost like similar to Tubular Bells, the theme to The Exorcist, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I think I think that movie as well had a big impact on him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, to be sure. Well, um, it's interesting because one thing he said, you know, they asked him about, why do you do the music? in your movies and he says i compose because i'm cheap and i'm fast (laughs) (laughs) and and, you know i think that's part of it you know is that he he wants to save money but he he clearly enjoys doing the music and yeah synthesizers were a way for him to put music together get his ideas together and a lot of times you know he had other people come in with other instrumentation but uh, on some of these movies, you know, there wasn't a lot of money, so he could just pull together a soundtrack with with the synthesizer, <laughs> and you know, it's effective because it's he does this kind of pulsing thing, which kind of amps up the tension. It's it's you know, it's uh, it's kind of cool because he he makes the film and then. You know, all the directors get to pick, you know, are you going to use this sound or you know, they talk a lot about temp tracks and, and famously, mm-hmm. you know, 2001's temp track wound up being yeah. the soundtrack <laughs> of the film. Well, the thing you with know, Carpenter, too, is like it wasn't always just a, syn- a synthesizer. Sometimes it was like a rock type soundtrack, which would be him and, you know, right. members of his old band or whoever he pulls together. Right. And, uh, and he might go in that direction as well. Big Trouble in Little China is probably an example of that. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And how cool is that in, in that, 
you know, it's not just the temp track. No, that's going to be the music for the film. You know, well, that's, that's him about. singing the, uh, the, the theme song to <laughs> Big Trouble With in this- China. Lowering his voice as much as possible. (laughs) But no, I mean, you know, it's it's great. I mean, obviously that he can do that. I think the first movie that he didn't do the soundtrack for would be The Thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because Ennio Morricone, the famous Italian spaghetti, spaghetti Western composer, did the music for that. But even in that one, he was telling a story where he would go over to Italy or whatever and Morricone did not speak English and he had this like music for the film that was all all these intricate notes and everything going on at once and uh, Carpenter would just say to him less notes less notes (laughs) and he would like simplify it to the point where it it was kind of you know in the style Mm -hmm. of John Carpenter's soundtrack I mean Carpenter could have done that soundtrack except he had Morricone and yeah just less notes I, I, I thought you were going to say uh, Morricone, more synthesizer, more hey, synthesizer, <laughs> more cowbell. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it was his first um, major studio film, so of course they bring in somebody else to do the soundtrack, mm-hmm. but he still has his influence on it because that's John Carpenter, right? You know. Well, it's, it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like Jackie Chan when he's over in Hong Kong. He does everything on his movies. He produces, yeah. he directs, he does the stunts, he runs the stunt team, he'll he'll sing the theme song, all that. When he comes over here and makes a movie over over here, you've got all the unions and everything, and he's just got to be an actor. And he can coordinate stunts, but that's like as far as it goes. I, I, I'm pretty sure with the thing, he had some, some street cred with, with how well Halloween did. And... Um, there was an interview I saw speaking of, you know, him getting involved in different aspects of the film. And one of the editors or producers were like, well, yeah, you know, John would come over and say, well, I could do it, you know, if, if you don't feel comfortable. Other than like stunts. I don't think he was a stunt uh, person. <laughs> <laughs> or who knows about the effects he brought? Was it Rob Bottin in to do the, the effects? Oh, yeah. Or the yeah. Thing? And, and I caught in a bunch of his films under special effects was Gregory Nicotero. Mm-hmm. Not Greg Nicotero, but Gregory Nicotero. So I assume Not, that was like some of his very early work. So without even getting into like all the films we're going to talk, I think a distinction, uh, a, you know, a John Carpenter film would be a film where he pretty much came up with the soundtrack or at least was heavily involved in the music that was used in the film. Would you all agree? That's a fair statement. Oh, to yeah. Me. Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah. And I think if you look at his style of directing as well, I mean, he's got a lot of, I don't know if it's a influence from noir films or whatever, but he's got a lot of low angles or interesting, you know, he doesn't shoot things like just right straight forward, Uh, low angle, high angle, uh, you know, a, a moving camera, things like that. And, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, there's definitely, it's a very stylized sense of directing. Definitely. I also notice um, the long, unin- uninterrupted takes. Mm. You know, you see that. I haven't watched Halloween in ages. And um, 
it's easy now, like if you watch it, you could say, oh, the, these, you know, it's so cliche, the, all the stuff. But he made those cliches. That, I mean, those. Exactly. <laughs> it's like that's what everybody's drawing from, you know. Yeah, and I they, mean, that the, was the start of the whole slasher genre right there. Exactly. And so he had so many things in it. But, you know, like the beginning where you're seeing through uh, little Michael's eyes and you have this whole uninterrupted take where he's going through the house with the knife and going up the stairs. Or like in The Thing, you have a long uninterrupted take where the dog that is actually The Thing uh-huh. is, you know, going down the hallway and coming and going into a room. He does a lot of stuff like that. and And there's a lot of he has a, a great ability to build tension and suspense, yeah. you know, the way he films things like that. Um, but I mean, do, I, do you think audiences today have the attention span for a lot of that buildup? I don't know. Or I really wonder about that. was it just a that? product of his times? And back then you could have a, a slow burn or a long buildup. It's a good question because so many things we see nowadays are such quick takes you can barely tell what's going on in some of these action scenes. I'll tell you one of the fun of watching these movies with Lieutenant Jasmine is she hadn't seen a, a, a ton of them. And um, that slow burn still works. I mean, you know, it, it's a great buildup and, and the payoff is like, bam, you know, and she'll jump or she'll, you know, scream or, you know, whatever the case is. So I think the perfect example of that is in the thing where he's uh, test where he's testing everybody's blood. oh man yeah and yeah. i swear uh, you know debbie and i were watching it and you know he's testing the blood and i know what's going to happen i know it's coming <laughs> and then boom the the jump scare hits and i swear to god i've seen that movie a thousand times and it gets me every damn time <laughs> and she was you know, i got her too but you know she was just laughing knowing that I'd seen it so many times and it still gets me. That scene was so effective. I remember me and my friends, we saw that in the theater and we went home and for weeks afterwards, because I'm such a weirdo, we'd be sitting on the couch together, like watching TV at somebody's house and I'd start shaking like the guy in the scene and, and then they'd go, get me off of this couch. And we'd reenact <laughs> the whole scene from the thing because it was so much fun fun and it had freaked us out so much in the theater. I thought you were going to say when you were there with your friends sitting on the couch testing each other's blood. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that was later on. (laughs) I love that. Such a random walker thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There were so many random things. But I mean, the thing was was not a big hit when it came out. No. It became a cult hit later and it did well well on video. I think you know, Halloween was really his big hit commercial film. You know, everything else kind of became cult films later on. Mm-hmm. I think maybe there was like one other one that maybe escaped from New York or something that, that did well, but. Yeah, for the most part. And I think, Larry, you were going to, I know I, I've listened to him explain, listened to Carpenter explain why the thing bombed, but. Larry, do you want to? I think you were about to tell the story. Uh, you know, I, and I wasn't sure, but wasn't it like E.T. or something came out at the same time? And, and everybody. God, and those, like, those movies are two totally different sides of the spectrum. Yeah, uh, but E.T. But, came out like a week before, and everybody was all over E.T. And, and at it, least this it, is what he blames for it. 
See, yeah, I had wow. the opposite I, effect. I couldn't stand E.T. I hated either. that movie. And then the <laughs> thing came out and it's like almost cleansed the palate. Well, you know what's funny is Bob and I were texting a couple days before the show. Uh, Bob and Lieutenant Debbie went to go see Nope, uh, the latest Jordan yep. Peele film. And surprisingly, Walker had no interest to go see the film. <laughs> Bob loved it. There's another friend of mine who hated it. Oh, really? Uh, and I, I and don't I'm see like, what there is to hate. The, the movie is really good. Well, and, and I've always, and you can ask Karen, I mean, ever since she's known me, ever since I've been a kid, I hate critics, whether it's a food critic. This look, is true. Be a wonderful person. I'm not knocking the individual. This is true. But why am I going to let someone tell me what I should like or not like? You know, whether it's a film or a food or whatever. So I will go see Nope because I am interested in that type of story. I mean, uh, you know, not just because it's Jordan Peele, but, you know, the the whole concept of life on another uh, planet coming to Earth for friendly or nefarious reasons. I, you know, and when you see and it and when thing. you see it, it is compared to other films out these days. So original. In, in his storytelling, you don't have family angst or drama or families trying to get back together. You don't have a character who, you know, I mean, they're having problems with the ranch and stuff, but I mean, it's not like this big cloud looming over everyone. No pun yeah. intended if you see the movie. But <laughs> um, yeah, it's just a, a very refreshing story, very refreshing characters, and it's a very good film. But John Carpenter did not make it. <laughs> no, yeah. So I digress. Well, you see, it was interesting, and in, in I know it was on Twitter. Uh, there were fans like saying, "Oh, you're like Jordan Peele. You're the greatest horror now, director of all time." Blah blah blah. So. And he said, "No, no, I cannot be as long as John Carpenter exists." Uh, and, you know, given given the man his props. Beautiful and segue. I, beautiful. And I think going back to the thing. I mean, that was the thing, Bob, just like you, I, I saw E.T. and I was ready to puke when I saw E.T. And I still haven't gone back to see it because I just felt it was Spielberg at his most saccharine, which just I cannot stand. Oh, yeah. I never saw it after that first uh, viewing in the theater. Well, we're in agreement on that. But then when I saw the thing, it hit every right note with me. I, I loved the utter nihilism of it. I loved the... You know, the paranoia, the suspense. And even though I don't like gory movies, I didn't mind the like weird, you know, nasty gore. I don't want to call it gore. It's just weird stuff, you know, that was going on because it was sort yeah. of like it's just like this weird alien thing. Um, so, yeah, I loved the thing. And that was really my introduction to, to John Carpenter. That was his first movie that I ever saw in the theater. And, and after that, then uh -huh. I had his name in my head. And it was like, oh, this guy makes really cool movies. Um, but, you know, the thing about the thing, though, is uh, <laughs> back then, was 86, 84? No, earlier than that. No, it was earlier. It was 82. 82. You know, you didn't have CGI. You didn't. You couldn't like create these things in a computer. 
all those effects were all practical effects done on the set. And if you look at it, as I always say, take it as a product of his time, it was way ahead of anything else that had come out. Oh, yeah. It was wild. As far as creature effects, I mean, find a movie that predates that. You know, maybe, maybe the Invasion of the Body Snatchers from the 70s. Has some interesting things, but, but not, not to nearly, the extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not anywhere near. And I, I think that's the problem with it. It freaked so many people out. There were a lot of people who turned against it and said, "This thing is too extreme. It's too gross. You know, it's a nasty movie." But you had such great characters in it. You had such a great cast in it. You know, doing such a, I mean, Wolford Brimley (laughs) was in it, but he was really good in it, you know, and Kurt Russell. And of course, Kurt Russell and John Carpenter worked together, I think, five different times. And this Uh was a great performance by Kurt Russell and Keith David. Oh, my God. Keith David is so good. Um, It's really like before Carpenter got a hold of Kurt Russell. He was like the computer that wore tennis shoes and right. you know the yeah. Disney movies and stuff. And it was basically Carpenter that took him and put him into these more mature roles. Mm-hmm. And he just ate up the screen in a lot of these movies. Oh, yeah. Well, like I was saying, I, I'm not one to, to follow. None of us are, are to follow the critics, but I love E.T. as well. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it, it's a feel-good movie and, you know... It, it was a nice story, you know, phone home and ouch and all that. But I do not love E.T. as much as I love the thing. And the, and the beautiful thing about the thing is that it's not a direct remake of the original. Right. It, to me, it's an homage. You know, it, it's a labor of love. And I think what what really probably affected the box office originally is once word of mouth got out. It's not a, a feel-good, happy ending they're basically going to die in the in the tundra, you know, oh. and freeze to death. Well, you know, I um, when I watched the thing this time, I listened to the commentary with Carpenter and Kurt Russell. Mm. Now they go off on a lot of tangents, <laughs> but one of the things they did discuss was that the studio wanted a different ending. They wanted a happier ending, and they wanted an ending where Russell. And Keith David would get picked up by a helicopter at the end. And they're like, no way, guys. This No way. The whole point of the movie is, you know, paranoia. You can't trust anybody. Uh-huh. This, you know, either of them or both of them or neither of them could be the thing. We don't know. That's the whole point. You just don't know, right? Uh-huh. And so, you know, they had to leave them there at the end. And Kurt Russell is the one who came up with the lines at the end between him and, and uh, Childs, you know. And, then, yeah, it leaves you feeling like, oh, my God, what's going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. But that was the perfect ending for that movie. If somebody had come in and whisked them away, you would have been sitting there thinking like, well, that doesn't feel right, you know. But, See, again, that, it's Carpenter my, stood up for it. That's my complaint about E.T. Because <laughs> it's so emotionally manipulative and That's he different. dies, but oh, they bring him back and everything's great. So I always, I, mean, I always wish for a sequel where he came back with other ETs from his planet and took revenge. <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, I mean, you know, 
for Carpenter to go in that direction. I don't think there were a lot of films back then that took that direction. I think most mm-hmm. of them had always had to wrap up with a happy ending. Yeah. And the thing about the thing about the thing, I gotta say again, um, it was based on the Howard Hawks film, but it went back to the original novel and was much more faithful to the original novel than, than right. the Howard Hawks film was. And we should tell our listeners that we did a whole episode. We did. We did. On the thing and the thing and the other thing. And the thing about the thing. The thing about the thing. And so yeah. uh, we even and, talked and, about John Carpenter's thingy, but that that's planned. That's a whole other thing. So. Well, I mean, we can maybe put a little link we in the show We can put a little link it. into it. And so people can go back and listen to that after they finish this one. So, yeah, if they want to know about the thing, we've talked about the thing a lot because we really like it. And I think it was either number seven or eight on our top ten sci-fi movies. I, I believe you're correct there, yeah, Walker. It, it got in the top ten for sure. Now, we're, we're going to talk about some more films, but before we talk about films that we've seen, why the heck did none of us watch Assault on Precinct? It was 13? <sighs> yeah. You know, I think because I wanted to watch more genre, like sci-fi and horror for the podcast. Yeah, I watched but I... so many movies for this that I just didn't get to it. I still have a I couple movies after. on disc that are sitting underneath the TV that I didn't get to because I ran out yeah. of time. Well, you guys watched way more than I had a chance. Your mission commander just came back from Maui, so forgive him for not <laughs> doing his homework like he should have. But um, I don't think he ever went back and did another film like Precinct 13, except maybe like Vampires, but I don't know. That was more. Well, I mean, uh, how would you know? We didn't see it. Assault on, <laughs> as, as far as I know, Assault on Precinct 13 didn't have any sort of fantasy Right. Or sci-fi or horror elements. It was a straight-up action movie, which I guess actually got him in trouble because there were some, for that time, really violent elements in it that um, got him, I think, an, maybe an X rating at that time in 76. Hmm. Um, there was a scene where a guy shot a little kid. <laughs> yeah, a little girl, right? Yeah. they were. He was supposed to, to cut that. And he didn't, and uh, it went out with the little girl getting shot. And uh, I guess he got some flack for that. But yeah, supposedly, again, that's... supposedly it was pretty brutal. In one of the interviews I saw him with him, he said he wouldn't, he would not do that now today. Yeah, he didn't think about you know back. He goes now that I have kids, and you know back then it was like, hey, this would be a good effect. Do it. Mm-hmm. That was one I, I would have liked to have seen. And I think uh, before we started rolling tonight, I mentioned uh, the TV movie with Kurt Russell, Elvis, which is oh, really, yeah. really, yeah. really hard to find. But I know I saw it when it came out. It's, and, probably, uh, on, it's probably on YouTube. I, well, yeah, they, I saw it when it was first aired, but I haven't seen it since. I, I saw bits and pieces of it on YouTube, but I hate having to track down like, oh, here's part one and there's part 17 and there's part five. And, right. You know, well, you, you look it up on like Amazon Prime and it has like all the different places that you can see it. And then yeah. you realize, ah, I got to pay two ninety nine for this. Forget it. Right. Well, I, I gave up and I ended up watching Bubba Hotep with Bruce Campbell. So, you know, it's almost the same film. <laughs> No, but you know, you mentioned vampires. I did watch vampires like last night. 
We were going to record your... last night, and unfortunately, Mission Commander had a migraine. So he said, no, not, he said, not tonight, dear. I have a headache. But, <laughs> but as well, I, I, was seen... able, I was able to sneak in vampires last night. I haven't seen that in probably 10 years or more. So what's your verdict? I actually thought it was good. Um, you know, they're, basically, they're vampire hunters that go out. Now, when I say they are, it's like they are at the beginning until they all get killed except for two. And uh, they go after, there are like vampires and there's like master vampires. And so the master vampire that comes back and slays everyone turns out to be like the first vampire that ever existed. So all vampires came from him. And That's the one where they have that like James. Uh, oh God, what's his name? James Wood. Woods. James Woods. Yeah, and yeah. they have that like harpoon, and they like reel him out like a fish. Yeah, yeah. He 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 shoots him with a harpoon, and then there's the other guy back at the jeep, and he yeah reels him out, and they're like dragged out into the sun, and they just and it's a really a cool effect. I mean, when they get in the sun, it's not like ah. And they turn into dust, or whatever. they like explode into flame. Yeah, very violent. Death. And uh, <laughs> yeah, after after they go after the first coven of vampires, they've got like nine skulls lined up on the hood of their jeep. You know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. We got nine of them today. You know, but uh, no, it's it's a good movie. I, I definitely enjoyed it. So that was in nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, that was one of his very, last ones, I think. Well, very late in his career. Yeah. When, when was Ghosts of Mars? That was Ghosts of that. Mars was two thousand one. Right, and I think and he came back in two thousand and four. Did a film, but he came back in two thousand ten and did a film called The Ward, which I did not see. Yeah, I not did watch. Died. I did watch uh, Ghosts of Mars, which was I okay. It's kind I haven't of seen a, that in a long time either. Yeah, it's kind of, kind of you know. Most of his movies are popcorn movies, but Ghost of Mars is very much a popcorn movie. It's a uh, popcorn that spilled on the floor, and you're just, not sure uh, if you want to eat it. Got caught under your foot, and it's a little sticky. Sticky. <laughs> but uh, now let me ask you, Bob, because it was—it's kind of like a turn off your turn off your brain and watch the movie, and you're good. Bob, I want to ask you. You're famous for having either the video or DVD version of a film, very seldomly will you go into the cloud to watch a, a movie. Do, do you have these John Carpenter films that you watched in your collection? I do. Wow. In fact, oh, that in fact I went out and uh, ordered or bought probably four or five discs for this Holy episode. Holy cow, dude. That yeah. is dedication. I had to pay for like four films on Amazon. Well, whichever ones I didn't, I mean, I figured, hey, these are all probably worth having. Um, yeah, somebody was just whining about some pay service dropping a bunch of films, and it's like, I don't have to worry about that. I got them all in the basement. Let's go down and grab a disc, watch whatever I want. I, I will say I hadn't seen Escape from New York in a long time. Yeah, same and I here. Was I was very pleasantly surprised how much I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe because I had a bad taste in my mouth from Escape from L.A. 
I hadn't, I hadn't watched, I hadn't watched Escape from New York in many years. You hadn't watched it in so long that they saw you watching it and said, "I thought you were dead." <laughs> That's what everybody thinks. Uh, you know, it's it's a really fun story. It's uh, it's very straightforward, and I think that is part of the J John Carpenter. Uh, style in that he likes to keep things very straightforward. He doesn't like to get very complicated. Um, although when we talk about Prince of Darkness, that kind of goes out the window. But he, <laughs> he, he likes to have, you know, he likes to tell a story. And, and it also has another component of his storytelling in that it's very anti-authority. Um, and I don't know, I assume this comes out of, you know, he was a young man in the 60s, early 70s, I'm sure, you know, Vietnam, Watergate, all that probably had a very strong uh, influence on him. But, you know, his anti-authority streak, also just the fact that, you know, he he likes to do things his way. He doesn't like to be told how to do things and so on and so forth. It's reflected in a lot of the characters in his films. So you have somebody like Snake Plissken, who, a former war hero who has kind of gone bad and now is sent in to rescue the president and doesn't really give a bleep about anybody. He's really there just because they've, you know, injected these explosives in him and if he doesn't get the president out in 23 hours he's, his head's going to blow up so I don't know it was a really enjoyable story it was one of those things where it was like oh you know if he'd had a big budget what could he do but then you know you look at Escape from LA it was like oh he had a big budget so it's the it's sort of like the John Carpenter paradox it's like he has a small <laughs> budget and he makes a great movie as a big budget and you're like what the f is he doing so but I did enjoy Escape from New York quite a bit. I well, think when you have a smaller budget, you have to try a little harder. That's probably and sometimes it. art comes out. But you but talk about like anti-authoritism. I mean, that he took that to the thousandth degree with They Live. Yeah. Well, you you put Adrian Barbo in a movie, and I'm I'm there. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, it it doesn't matter what what the movie's about as long as Adrian no, Barbo. All this anti-authority stuff, really? That's what it was about? I didn't know this. <laughs> I think, speaking of Adrian Barbeau, uh, yeah. I think one of my favorite Carpenter films is The Fog. It's a great movie. Me too, right? And it's, a, it's like, you know, straightforward ghost story mm -hmm. with all these pirates in the fog that are, you know, coming in and killing people and the lighthouse and it's just, it all takes place in this little village and... Uh, yeah, was, I think it's an amazing film. Hey, and you talk about a slow burn. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, he really takes the time to develop the story. And these right. characters introduced, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis is in that film. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, just fantastic. And, and such a great payoff at the end. Um, I, I also watched the remake of, of The Fog and uh, don't even bother. Yeah, it's a turd. It's a complete <laughs> yeah, yeah, turd. Did, did he, I, he produce that, didn't he? Or he had something to do with it? I think he might have. Yeah. And, you know, when or he was a consultant. Produced, I think I read somewhere that his whole job was to come on set, say hello to everybody, and then go home. 
and take your money like, and run. Kind of like Roddenberry producing Star Trek towards the end, you know, yeah. more so in name, I think. Than Come in, if... eat a donut from the craft table, <laughs> fart, and go home. <laughs> I, you know, the thing about the fog that's so interesting is that apparently when they completed the film, he looked at it and he was like, oh, my God, this is a mess. And so they went back. They they had to reshoot it, reshoot parts of it anyway, a lot of it, and rework it. Because when he, he, you know, originally was done with it, he was like, well, this isn't scary. This isn't what I wanted it to be like. And they had to redo a lot of it. Um, I have no mm-hmm. idea, like, how that affected the budget. I can only imagine. But, yeah, for having to go back and rework it, I think it's an excellent movie. I love that movie. And um, like you said, Larry, it's it's one of those movies where he takes the time and he introduces – the village and the different people and you get to know them. So like by the time at the end you get to the priest, you're really like, holy crap, you know, they're coming in after right. the priest and you actually are invested in the characters, you know, or Adrian Barbeau's character in the lighthouse, you know, and she's at the radio, doing the radio station and everything. And Larry, Larry yeah. was very well invested in that part. He was extremely <laughs> invested. Absolutely. Um, you know, the beauty of it is if you think about Halloween, The Fog, The Thing, and um, Big Trouble in Little China. Different stories, different beats, different action. But there's still that Carpenter element to those films that that is noticeable, whether it's the music, the, the way that he films it, the, the production, you know. Um, I, I just... I, I, think he's a brilliant brilliant director and and that body of work that he has i mean i fortunately didn't get to see like i said some of the films like assault on precinct 13 um but hey i mean i had a lot of fun uh researching and and doing the homework on on this episode watching those movies that i did get to watch well i mean if all he did was the thing and big trouble in little china yeah, I'd still be praising the guy because I mean those Big Trouble in Little China is like one of my all time favorite movies. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's yeah. you look at that and it's like so completely different mm-hmm. than the stuff before it, you know. And he's like, well, I wanted to make a Hollywood kung fu slash Chinese mysticism movie, and it's like, wait a minute, the guy who did Halloween wants to make this movie, and it's like. You know, but he did. And and the thing is, he resisted the studio on that, too, because, you know, they're like, well, we want something like Indiana Jones. But then what they get is Kurt Russell playing basically a buffoon. You know, (laughs) (laughs) he's like he can't get out of his own way. And then Dennis Dunn, who would normally be like the sidekick, is actually the hero, you know, And, and the studio was like so upset over that but again it's it's john carpenter that's how he's going to do things you know but then in that movie you had james hong as like oh the one of the best screen villains of all time yeah and just his performance i mean if you look at it you know lopan he's got to play the young lopan mm-hmm. he's got to play the old wheelchaired lopan <laughs> 
And, and he uh, plays, you know, creepy with... Uh, <laughs> Mr. Burton, with, you are really starting to piss me off. <laughs> uh, the women, hello, my darling. Oh, may I touch you there? Oh, you make me really excited. It's like, whoa. <laughs> he was, he was amazing. You were not put on this earth to get it, Mr. Burton. Yeah. <laughs> he was good because he could be menacing. He could be funny. Um he was, yeah. It, well, it was funny. They had a, uh, I'm one of those people. I watch CBS Sunday morning. I'm at that <laughs> age so now. We. I sit there with <laughs> my, my bagel and, and watch CBS Sunday morning. And they had a whole segment on James Hong and like all the different roles he's played over the years and the different shows he's been on. And He's um, been in like more movies than any living actor, I think. It was yeah, like 400 yeah. some movies. It's yeah. like, wow, this dude has been working Television. Yeah. Right. Amazing guy. But yeah, you look at that that film and like Kurt Russell and him were just having a ball making that movie. <laughs> you know, they're just having the time of their lives doing it in the studio. It's like, what the hell are you giving us? What is this movie? They couldn't figure out what they were doing with it, but it's got such a huge cult following now. James Hong was at Monster Palooza once. Yep. Oh, wow. And he did the James Hong show live <laughs> on like Saturday night. And he sat, I, I was like walking around the con and he was sitting in a makeup chair. You know, they always have those makeup demonstrations. Yeah. And they mm-hmm. made him up like Lopan. Oh, not, not wow. the wheelchair Lopan, but the, the big headdress and everything else. Mm-hmm. And he went up on stage, started the show. In Lopan character, he brought people up, you know, one person to play Jack Burton, one person to play, you know, he brought in like two or three people that to pay, play different characters. And I think they had some of the stunt people, the people that played uh, like lightning and thunder and those. And uh, yeah, he was, he put on a, he was hilarious. And then his daughter had, she writes this really demented creepy poetry and she'd get up there and start reading that while he went off stage and took off all his makeup and everything and came back on and it was just I mean I wish I had a video it was an amazing amazing stage show Bob did his daughter go by the stage the stage name Kitten on the Keys (laughs) no oh boy that's such an inside joke I don't even that that goes back to our Thrillville days. The less said, but, uh, the better. Yeah, yeah, we'll uh, we'll let that one go. I I now I realize that Prince of Darkness is not everyone's cup of tea, and I <laughs> I think it's an extremely flawed film. And some people might say this is where like the the wheels started to come off the wagon, but I think it had a lot of interesting concepts. It did. I think maybe the execution was not fully there. You know, Jesus was a space alien. The devil was like some sort of plasma. I don't know. There's quantum physics and other stuff going on. But there was a lot of cool stuff in that movie. It makes me question, though, if he felt so strongly that he had to go back in and reshoot pieces of the fog, if not more than half of the film. He might have thought of giving two shits about it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, and this is, I guess, a question, I mean, with a lot of artists, right, is 
is there a point at which, you know, do they start believing their own hype or, or is there a case where like, you only have so much creativity and maybe some, after a while, some of it's like used up or, I mean, like I, I, I love Prince, but I, for a long time there, when Prince was putting out albums, it always felt to me like it was, you know, this album would be great. The next album would be kind of, eh, eh, and the next album would be great. And the uh-huh. next one would be, eh. but he had so much material, you know, and he'd just keep putting it out. And it was like, eh, okay, well, that one wasn't great, but the next one probably will be. And like, when I look at John Carpenter's overall portfolio, like you guys were saying, if he had only put out like, you know, the thing, Halloween, they live, the fog, he's a superstar, you know, he's an unquestioned master. Anyway, he put out all this other stuff. And I did watch, there were some movies I hadn't seen before that I watched for, for this, including um, In the Mouth of Madness, which came out in 94, and Village of the Dam, which came out in 95. And they just didn't have, I don't know, whatever that, that quality is to put them over the top like some of these other movies. You I know? did I did watch In the Mouth of Madness and I, I did enjoy it. It's very Lovecraftian and dark and strange twists and turns. Um and this speaking of twists and turns, I think Sam Neill like half the film he's doing an English accent or American <laughs> accent. The other half he's doing a British accent. It's kind of was going back and forth. I had no idea what was what was going on there, but uh, but I mean, did you feel like it was at the same level as like the fog or they live or you know? Well, no, because I mean, well, not so much they live. But I mean, like the fog and the thing, and you know, some of those films I put so high on a pedestal that you know it's hard hard to match them. Yeah, uh, but I I did think it was it was a good solid film, unlike Ghost of Mars or you know some of the others but it's just yeah it just i just felt like okay i understood it's like questioning reality and you know sort of like what is reality and there's all those twists and turns and eh. there's also commercialism in that in that he's working for this author's publishing company trying to go and find the author and how many movies can you name to have an insurance investigator as the main character yeah it was i mean it was definitely odd again it was like an unusual concept just like prince of darkness another really unusual concept but it was like it just didn't quite get there for me you know it just didn't quite have the magic that some of these other films did well should we kind of we've kind of glossed over they live a couple times but yeah we should probably talk talk a little bit about they live that was definitely anti-commercialism, anti-authoritarianism. I mean, he basically said in an interview, he was looking at all of Ronald Reagan's policies and decided to make a movie. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can see it. You can see you put those, it. I always wanted a pair of those glasses, but yeah, you, know, you put on the glasses and you look around, you can see the aliens. And actually, it, he was saying there was one person who played all those aliens. Yeah. Male, female, young, old, whatever. It was one guy that would put on the makeup and the clothes and whatever, and he, he would be the aliens. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you look around and it says, you know, spend money and, you know, get married and have kids and, you know, whatever. It was all the uh, sort of the social norms 
being dictated to you by this race of aliens who wanted us to be so complacent that they could come and take over. Yeah. Uh, Here's the beauty of that film. If you've never seen it and you watch it today, it's still relevant. Yep. Oh, definitely. And and it's still, I I mean, that's the beauty of that movie. That and the Rowdy Roddy Piper. That was one thing I was going to bring up is that, I mean, I didn't, I never watched wrestling. And so I didn't really, I mean, I was kind of aware. I knew who Rowdy, Roddy Piper was, but I never watched wrestling. And I was thinking about this today. And, you know, he could have just as easily said, hey, Kurt Russell, come play this Mm -hmm. role. But I think it was a lot better with Roddy Piper than it would have been with Kurt Russell, because I think the kind of character they had in, in their this this every man sort of character i just think roddy piper pulled it off a lot more realistically than probably kurt russell would have and nothing against kurt russell he's a i love him he's a great actor but i think they needed somebody much more down to earth less pretty boy just kind of you know somebody man. what's that average man yeah you know more of a, a Joe Blow, construction worker kind of guy, you know. But could could Kurt Russell have pulled off that fight? Holy that goes cow! On that's for the, like half hour. <laughs> it's the greatest fight because you look at it and you really think those guys are really beating the crap out of each other. And it's not like kung fu martial arts jumping around. It's just like you know, two guys. It's almost like if two guys on a construction site got on a got in a fight. Oh and yeah, they're just beating the hell out of each other. They're just throwing and it each just other goes on and on, and it's all over. Piper <laughs> wants to glasses. wear those glasses. Just put on the glasses. Yeah. yeah. No, put them on. No. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, I am a huge Rowdy Roddy Piper fan, and did watch wrestling. We'd actually go to the Oakland Coliseum and watch the shows when they came into town. Cowboy Bob Orton and you know uh, the Wild Samoans. Um, <laughs> Oh, my God. Uh, Jimmy Superfly Snook. I could go on and on. <laughs> and my one of my regrets, I'm not a big autograph hound now and, you know, never really was. I'd, I'd get some of the, you know, Shatner and Nimoy. But Wrestling? Piper was at one of the toy shows in San Jose. What was that, Walker? I said you Shatner and Nimoy Wrestling? <laughs> well, there is that one episode when they uh, visited Alexander. Well, anyway, that's a whole nother. <laughs> yeah. um, but I saw him, you know, walking. He went to go get like a beer or something, going back to his table. And I have a picture somewhere on my phone, and I wish I would have got his autograph. He was so down to earth. I'd walk by the table. He's, oh, yeah, you like wrestling? Oh, okay. Oh, they live. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. There was an um, interview that I watched. And, um, oh God, the name of the actor, um, he fought was, uh, Keith David. It was Keith David. Keith David. The thing. The thing. And, and he was like, you know, Rowdy was like, yeah, just hit me, you know? And he's like, Rowdy, I'm no, 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 I'll find, you know? And he knew all the ways to fall, all the ways to take like hits so that it didn't really hurt. Now, Roddy Roddy Piper was deaf in one ear because he had a, a match with Greg the Hammer Valentine and they had these chains and he kept on hitting them in his ear oh. and he did such a da- I mean, you know, the, the, the Piper, there's this um, documentary they did on Piper and he tells this story early on in his career. They wanted him to wrestle a bear 
a Russian bear, black bear. And he's like, what? And, and so the guy, the promoter kept on like patting Rowdy on his butt, you know, like, okay, champ, you got it. Don't worry. You know, and, and he's like, this isn't baseball. What are you doing? Turns out that the promoter was slathering honey on Piper's butt. Oh, so the geez. bear would go like crazy. It's like, anyway, <laughs> segue into this. Piper, he was a great guy. I wish he was able to do more movies um, like They Live. I think he, uh, it was his first time really acting and, you know, for whatever reason, it didn't do a lot of box office like, like I think it should. Mm -hmm. It's a classic in my opinion. And again, a completely different film than, you know, Halloween or, or The Thing or, um, you know, Into the Mouth of Madness or vampires but still such a potent message and and so well made and acted so i gotta ask you though who did better against the bear roddy piper or lou ferrigno (laughs) (laughs) i think lou uh fared far better uh roddy lost his pants in that match actually and and couldn't Uh, figure out why the bear was going up the old poop chute but again i i uh digress it's uh well, Lou, uh, Lou Ferrigno got to chuck the bear, like, across a lake or something, didn't he? Yeah, but, you know, that was a bear skin. That wasn't like a... <laughs> you know, they, they took the costume off the, on, the guy when he threw it. Don't ruin the illusion. <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they were talking about... Uh, and this is totally going off topic, but Andre... What? Let's go Giant, off topic? <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, Andre the Giant was another fantastic wrestler back in the day and and he and Piper were at a bar after a match and um yeah these college football kids they were like making fun of Andre and whatever and so Andre and, and yeah everybody's like buzzed and drunk Andre goes outside and flips over their Cadillac <laughs> just, just <laughs> lifts it up and, and and Piper's like shit you know Andre and Andre's pissed you know and and they call the cop and the cops come over and Piper's like come on come on let's go and uh, you know they're they're tucked away in the bar, but it's hard to hide a giant. But anyway, the cops are like talking to the college kids, and they're like, "Officer, this giant came out and flipped our caddy." And he's like, uh, "How much have you been drinking, kids?" And you know, there's this whole like thing. But I, I'm like, man, those are great stories. I wish you know they'd make a movie off of stuff like oh, that. Oh, those were the days. Those were the days. Anyway, too bad John Carpenter didn't make a movie with Andre's child. <laughs> Oh man! But anywho, uh, yeah, another favorite of my uh, Carpenter films, and I don't have my Blu-ray here, but I want to say like, um, uh, not Mondo, but one of those companies put out a, a special edition of They Live, and they had a lot of good interviews on it. Oh gosh, I think I have that, but I don't, I can't access it right now. Yeah, was it Arrow or? Anywho. Or Shout, maybe. I don't know. Could have been Shout Factory, yeah. Now that I think about it, you're right. But yeah, that, that's a fun film. What was the last movie that Carpenter directed, do you guys know? The, the Ward in 2010. The Ward. Which I did not see, and I don't know a lot about. Hmm. Uh, let's see. I can pull it up here. I'm assuming the award was not Dick Grayson. <laughs> <laughs> it is a 2010 American 
supernatural psychological horror film. Oh, starred Amber Heard. Uh. Um, set in 1966, the film chronicles a young woman who is institutionalized after setting fire to a house and finds herself haunted by the ghost of a former inmate at a psychiatric ward. Uh. Can't so do that. that was his last turn at directing. I believe nowadays he prefers to work on his music. He's actually toured around playing music. Um, a lot of music from his films and other original compositions. You know, music has always been a love of his besides film. So All he's right. out there enjoying making music and taking a lot of residual checks and, <laughs> you know, getting money from things like Halloween ends. So I think he's done yeah. really well for himself. And, you know, he's he's obviously been a huge influence on a oh, lot yeah. of directors, you know, Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez and a lot of these guys will, you know, talk about how Carpenter has influenced them. So his legacy, I think, this is the thing, you know, you look at his films and like, oh, man, it didn't do good at the box office. But I think they have longevity that, you know, goes beyond the box office. Oh, absolutely. Well, definitely. I mean, you know, thank God for home video and you mm -hmm. know, streaming and what have you. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think, you know, the few of us that did see a lot of the movies in the theater, in the drive-in, what have you, um, helps keep it alive, you know, Hey, let's watch the thing. Let's go watch the fog. Let's watch, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting that so many of these films have been remade or, you know, in the case of Halloween, Jesus, I don't even uh, know how many uh, sequels and stuff they've made to that. And as yeah. you mentioned, Larry, they, they made a, another version of The Fog. I mean, they made a prequel to Carpenter's The Thing. Uh -huh. um, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that follows up on John Carpenter films or is, you know, direct homage to John Carpenter work. So, um yeah, you can just see his influence kind of all over the place. Long live the king. Long live Absolutely. John Carpenter. Absolutely. Anything else you guys have for uh, John Carpenter? Anything we missed? Okay. Well, I mean, I if he's listening and ever wants to come on the show, <laughs> he's more than welcome. <laughs> After we shat on a few of his films, but hey, we're just we're just keeping it real, John. We're keeping just it real. Keeping it real. We love you, buddy. We, we love, love you. Yeah. Hey, so okay, kids, this is the point in our show where we do our censor sweep, but with the unfortunate news of the passing of Nichelle Nichols, we wanted to take a few moments and share some thoughts and um, pay respects to um, Nichelle. Um, either one of you have any memories, either from a convention or, or just television program? Well, I mean, I never really got any uh, autographs or photos with her, but um, yeah, I mean, I used to go to the very early Star Trek conventions back in, you know, the 70s, and uh, she'd always be there. She and George Takei would always seem to be there together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, uh, and just you know, seeing her at cons over the years, she was always very graceful, graceful for to all the fans, and 
she was always you know really nice and smiling and I think yeah you, know, you get all these telltale books of the various actors and things but I don't think anyone ever had a bad thing to say about Nichelle Nichols yeah yeah just true just real sweetheart and you know basically her legacy speaks for itself just being a pioneer you know in Star Trek you know having having that role as Lieutenant Uhura in fact she was going to leave Star Trek at one point and Martin Luther King actually talked her into staying saying right. that she was a, a great influence to not just you know black people but black women and uh she had the first interracial kiss on the show and uh yeah a lot, a lot of trailblazing you know i mean a lot of the black actresses back then they were either you know secretaries or maids or whatever they didn't have as media role as uh as Uhura did and and what an influence she made on on generations of young african-american females um I think Paramount Plus has a documentary on how involved Nichelle was in, as a spokesperson for NASA, and um, one of the one of the original cast actors that was at the uh, dedication of the shuttlecraft uh, Enterprise. Um, so yeah, a a very long career, a, a beautiful heart and soul, fantastic actress. And, um, you know, it was, it was um, sad. Uh, Karen had posted on Twitter, I think he said something like, there's only three left now Yeah. of, of the original cast. And um, Karen and I would go to the conventions as well. We went to the, the top of my mind is the, the sci-fi summit that our mm -hmm. friends at Creation would put, down, uh, put on down in Pasadena. And it was oh, yeah. George and Nichelle had to share the stage and I, I don't know if <laughs> you know they were <clears throat> wanting to have their own time George was talking about the internment camps Japanese and it showed well that's a very interesting point George however you know African Americans endured slavery and yeah and, and they were kind of going back and forth on the suffering of their people <laughs> they were they were trying to one-up each other is what it felt <laughs> like it was it was it was a little entertaining but you know those days those early days watching them on stage and stuff and they were always there for the fans so i mean they yeah. were always out there and yeah i remember the early conventions not even paying for autographs in the early days right well and they I, wouldn't my, even charge to be at the conventions yeah, yeah. My, george, my george big, and michelle in particular used to go to those all the time yep in my, fact uh, if you look at george takei's facebook page and of course george takei is kind of the king of facebook these days um, he has a real nice write-up about Nichelle and mm -hmm. all the support he's gotten from her over the years. And he has a great story about when he and his, his boyfriend got married and they asked Walter Koenig to be the best man. And then they asked Nichelle to be the matron of honor. And she looked at Walter Koenig and being the best man and she said, no, I want to be the best lady. So they had a best man and a best lady, and those were the two. Yeah, that was their wedding party. It was Walter Koenig and Nichelle Nichols, and she supposedly she's been there for all of his achievements. You know, he was running for city council in L.A., mm -hmm. and she was out there campaigning for him, and uh, you know, gets a star on Hollywood Walk of Fame. She's there for him. You know, just 
He said all his milestones, she would come out and support us. That's sweet. Yeah, like you said, Bob, I don't think anybody, I haven't heard a negative thing about her the entire time I've been, you know, a Star Trek fan. And she uh, was always, you know, at the conventions. And I have to say the last few years, it was it was a little hard to see her at the shows. Um, it right. kind of felt like maybe somebody else was putting her out there. Well, but, she was suffering from Alzheimer's, right? Yeah, I think she had dementia. Uh, she had had a stroke in 2015, and then there was a conservatorship battle, a three-way battle. Um, so, you know, it's hard to see those things happen to to our, our heroes as they get older. Well, I know um, Commander but, Larry and I were supposed to go to her last appearance, and they ended up having to cancel that one. Mm-hmm. Right, because of COVID. But... You know, as, as you guys mentioned, what a life she had, how influential she's proven to be, not just as Uhura, which was, you know, quite a, a, a an amazing um, trailblazing role, but then her work through NASA, recruiting women and people of color into NASA, which, you know, that's a, a whole nother level of impact. So, absolutely. you know, we're sad to to see her passing and I don't know guys where we and many of our listeners are getting of a certain age where many of our our heroes are heading off to that final frontier and it's very hard for us to see them go but we can at least feel glad that uh, you know many of them have lived very you know special lives and yeah. uh, you know but, uh, take uh, that to heart Nichelle Nichols yeah. passed away like as we're recording and she passed away the day before we recorded this episode and today I was like listening new, watching the news listening to news on radio listening to some talk shows and things and unfortunately uh, basketball star Bill Russell passed away as well yes and he's kind of taken all the headlines um, I don't hear a lot about Nichelle she, of course, she's all over my Facebook page, but right. uh, as far as the general news, the general public, Bill Russell's kind of eclipsed all that. Well, but to all of us and all the listeners, I'm sure our, uh, our hearts and minds are with Nichelle and her loved ones. Yes. And, you know, listeners, if you have a story you'd like to share in the comments uh, on, on any of our social media platforms, Please do. We, we'd love to hear. You know, we want to celebrate Michelle's life, and um, and in doing so, uh, sharing memories is a way to do that. So, um, thank you for uh, for listening to our uh, our little uh, portion of the show uh, talking about Michelle. Um, kids, that takes us to the end of another Planet Eight podcast episode. This was an exciting and fun episode, as they all are. <laughs> so Don't look, just believe have, him. Uh, Go back and listen to some. That's <laughs> right. We have social media presence on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. We're now on Instagram. So find us, like us. There's no escape. Well, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Our escape domination from the planet of the eights. <laughs> anyway, my friends... Uh, stay safe, take care of yourselves until we meet again. Peace out.
On that note, this will conclude this transmission from Planet 8. We would like to thank all of our intergalactic audience for listening. Be sure to head on over to our website at www.planet8podcast.com where you can get more information on this episode's topic. For more conversation, find us on Twitter at Planet8Cast. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash planet8podcast. We want to thank you guys for tuning in each and every episode. We look forward to your input and opinions. Until next time, this is Planet 8, signing off. End transmission. By George, he's got it. It is the end. Are you crazy? Is that your problem?